0: To Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host Steve Cooper and remember I'm only as hip as my guest. I gotta tell you something people, the weathermen back east suck. Now you know when I lived in LA for all those years, the weather is pretty much all the same. But since I moved back to Philadelphia, and I don't remember this as a kid, but the weather people were always wrong. Like last night they said we were going to get one to three inches. It rained all night, night nothing. Today, it was sunny. They said we're going to get one to three inches, and we got, like, nothing. And what bothers me, though, is when they predict snow, like tonight I'm going to an event, I'm going to take an Uber because I'm going to drink. The Uber drivers crank up your rate because they say snow, even though it doesn't snow. Anyway. We have a great show today. This gentleman has had a great career, and in fact, if you listen to the Greg Kinn episode last year, he came up because he uh, he co-wrote Rekindled, which I, I really dug. That I, I told you I dug that album, and my guest is Robert Berry. How you doing, Robert?
1: Hey, Steve, I'm good. How are you?
0: I'm doing great, man. I'm doing great. So, uh, so yeah, it's funny. We talked about you last week with Greg and and the Rekindled, um, the Rekindled album, which I dig. Yes. Um, how did, how did you, I will talk about you, how you started playing with Greg, but when did you guys decide to start writing together? Cause it, it is a good, it is a good album. It's got a lot of different sounds. When did you start a writing relationship with him?
1: You know, it, Greg actually called me, he had a big radio show here in Silicon Valley where I'm at, and he's on for 18 years. About the middle of that, his bass player, Steve had a stroke. And Steve was his writing partner and the main guy in his band all the, his whole career. And he called me on the air and said, hey, Robert, it's Greg Kinn. I go, hey, Greg, how you doing? Because I knew him from opening from him different things in town and different concerts. And he goes, look, um, I'm looking for a bass player, and I want you to be the guy. And we're on the radio, and he had a huge show here. So I'm like, well, I think that sounds like a lot of fun, Greg. Now, the problem with that is, of course, he's had a huge radio show. So he would go uh, get up at 4 in the morning, drive into San Jose, do his show, and he didn't really want to play too many shows at night, at uh, concerts, because he's so tired. So we played maybe 10 times a year. During those first uh, five or six years, The kept saying, we need to do another album, Greg. You know, you're a musician, you're a singer, you have hit songs, that's what you need to do. So... I finally talked him into it. I have a recording studio here. They are at the best everything. We started spending every Wednesday writing songs and just doing the thing. And it took a while for him to get back into the songwriting mode because he was more used to, like you're doing, you know, thinking you talk about on the radio. You have to sound at least intelligent and have some subject matter. So he was used (laughs) to that, not writing a the song that people could sing along with. But after a couple of years, we had done... And I thought it really turned out fabulous. I was determined to get a real Greg Kent album built. A lot of times bands will change their course as they get older and time goes on. And what you really like them for is gone. So I worked and worked them until we had what I considered the next great Greg Kent album. And you like it, so I think we got something there.
0: Yeah, you know it's funny because it's got a lot of different sounds. I love the song about the flamingos, and he told me he wrote that just driving, you know, to your place. Because he said I think he said it was like a yeah. a little bit of rut. But the thing is, and, and I'm I you know I am a classic rock guy who loves the '80s and I love the '90s. My fiance always gives me crap because she says I don't really listen to anything new, and I go because I'm happy with the stuff I listen to. But it had a good sound, and there was a little bit of like a little bit of rockabilly in there. It was very diverse, and I think we need that now because people, you know. People are getting back into the '80s and and getting back into rockabilly. The younger people and something like this is a, is an album that just it had a really good sound.
1: Well, I, I appreciate that. We worked hard on it. It took a few years. I hope you're not getting the echo when I talk. But when I'm speaking. I'm hearing a bad echo in the background there.
0: I'm not. I'm um, not getting any echo for
1: you. Oh, that's funny. Okay, I mean, I, if I sound like I'm sort of drawn out, it's because I'm hearing that. That flat back, like I'm in a big stadium. So, yeah, it it was a great process. Greg's a great guy to work with. We have a really good writing relationship, good friendship. In fact, you were talking about the weather there. We're heading to Michigan tomorrow. Oh. Playing uh, to Michigan and then Cleveland. And a couple of those are two-hour drives to get where we have to go, and I am not looking forward to that.
0: If your flight even gets out. It is, I mean, I heard the Midwest, because I'm outside Philadelphia, and I heard the Midwest is like, I see it on Facebook. People are saying it's minus 16. That's not even whether. I know. We, that's not even whether we should have. <laughs> no.
1: I, I'm thinking, yikes. And how are we going to drive in it? Of course, you're in the car, you're warm. When you're in a building, you're warm. But it's that point of going from the car to the building that's minus 16. And I've never been. I've been in Chicago when it's maybe five degrees, and so that's cold. Oh. It's This crazy. is a lot worse.
0: So, Joe, so now, I was reading on your website with people. Uh, it's robertberry.com. It's a very good website, very informative. Uh, you, you come from a musical family?
1: Yeah, my, my dad had a big band, like the Frank Sinatra era. And my mom was a singer in his band.
0: So when did you decide you wanted to start playing music? At a, at a young age?
1: <laughs> my mom was eight months pregnant before the band knew she was pregnant. She was a very, very tiny lady. And she's always very proud of that. They didn't even know until I was eight months pregnant. I finally had to quit. I had one more month till you were born. So I was actually in a band before I was born. So <laughs> that's why I laughed and asked me that. But I got in my first official band when I was 12 years old, like from seniors in high school. Came into my dad's music store at that point and wanted me to play uh, organ at the time in their band. And they thought they'd get free equipment from my dad's box store, which is what the Beatles use, box amplifiers. So it worked out for me. I was working with guys who were 17 and 18. I was 12 years old. And they already knew how to make a band happen and how to get gigs. And I was making $30, $40 bucks a week playing in a band when I was 12. That was pretty good.
0: Oh, yeah. So, so what kind of music were you playing?
1: You know, just early rock stuff. I mean, they, they kind of liked... Oh, I mean, it wasn't Beatles kind of stuff. They kind of liked, uh, the, the bluesier, the animals, and, uh, what else? Some American stuff. You know, Jefferson Airplane, you know, just early, I guess late 60s kind of rock.
0: So you're playing in this band. You're 12, which is pretty cool, especially you know. I mean, a 12 year old. I mean, I I think I had a paper route at 12 years old, and you're sitting there playing <laughs> live gigs. And I wasn't making $40 because yeah. no one ever paid me. They always hid when you come up. But for you now, as you you decide you're going to go to into music, say so you go to college and you're a music major.
1: Yeah, I uh, I was such a nut for music even all through high school. I managed to get into classes. Uh, where the English teacher was sort of progressive, and he'd let me make movies and write music to the movies for my English papers. Instead of I still had to write it out, but I could make a project out of it. And I was just all about music all the time. I'm, I had a couple friends in high school, but mainly I'd go home in my parents' garage, and I'd practice with a band, or I'd be recording a little 4-track I had. And I thought at that point, you know, music is a tough career, My dad went to San Jose State University here, so I'm going to major in music. If things don't work out in uh, uh, the rock and roll world, then I can at least be a music teacher and sing something I love and try to inspire kids. So I had the backup plan, just in case.
0: So you have the backup plan, but then when you were in San Jose State, you formed a band called Hush?
1: Yeah. That was interesting. I actually didn't form it. A local booking agency... Took two guys from my band, me being the keyboard player, bass player at that point, and my drummer, and two guys from another band, Gene Peralt, who's still a very close friend of mine, and Joe Connorsaro, a guitar player, and they put us together as kind of a local super group, and they said, you guys really get along and play well together. Why don't you figure out a name, put some material together, and see what happens? He was going to have a showcase for an agency, I think it was in two weeks. So we got together, and we learned, oh, what like, a verse in a chorus of four or five songs. And we went to that showcase, and we played it. And every high school and college in our area, there were hundreds of them, went to these showcases to book their bands for the whole year, for their prom, for their dances, everything. We only knew four or five songs, like, what is that, a minute and a half, a verse in a chorus? we got every gig. It was just a sort of magic combination. It was a really powerful band. We picked great material. Uh, we had good stage presence, and all the kids wanted to book us. The problem was we only had, you know, 10 minutes of music, and there's one verse and one chorus. We didn't really know when he saw. So the gigs didn't start for a couple months, and so we spent a lot of time, you know, working out two hours of material, and getting all the equipment together, found some opening acts to finish that third third hour. Um, and it just took off from there. We, we became original act, got a record contract out of a ASI Records of Minneapolis, toured the United States a little bit. And we started doing pretty well. The record company went bankrupt because of some band they had put a bunch of money into that didn't do well. And from that on, at that point, Hush didn't seem to be able to get another leg up on things. So... I decided uh, to break that up and start the Robert Berry Band. And as soon as I did that, Carl Palmer called me down here at the studio and said, Hey, I like your cassette tape. I like the say of cassette tape. Wow, I love that's cassettes. A long time
0: I love cassettes.
1: Yeah. And he heard it at Geffen Records. A friend of mine had actually sent it around a record company. He said, I didn't even do it. A friend said, This is really good. You got to send this out. So Carl Palmer called, says, We want to be in a band. It was like Greg Kinn called me years later. want to be in a band, you know, right here at the studio. And uh, I said, Well yeah. He goes, I like your voice, like your songs, let's get something going.
0: Now were you a fan of ELP Grow did you dig their music? Did you want to play music like theirs? What was it I mean any if I mean if Carl Palmer calls you know, it's a great thing. But were you a fan of their band, so were you just probably blown away?
1: You know, I was a huge yes fan. Um and I was an Emerson fan because I had a Moog and um, I was doing a lot of studio work, and, you know, Mo would do kind of a horn sound different things besides the synthesizer stuff. So, you know, I wasn't as much into ELP and buying the albums as I was. Uh, Greg's folk songs were on the radio, Lucky Man, in the beginning, and Pete Emerson's playing because I started as a keyboard player. So I was a fan in some ways, but not deep into the album. But Carl Palmer, one of the world's great drummers, He's going to ask me to be in a band. I'm not going to say no, that's for sure. I said, Yeah, Carl. He goes, All right, my manager will call you. I'll meet you in New Jersey. We're talking to Joe Lynn Turner, all kinds of people about trying to start a band. And nothing really gelled at the beginning. We spent a year. I had moved to England, and Steve Howe needed a guitar player, songwriter, partner for GTR. So I joined Steve Howe.
0: Now spend a year with them. What was that like? Saying because you were a Yes fan, I mean that must have blown your oh. socks off. You must have been like, "Holy crap, Steve!" First of all, I'm going over to London to see with ELP. Well, not all of you know, but with Palmer and Emerson, and then yeah. Steve Howe. I mean, what is going through your mind at this point? Because you have to be a little bit blown away because you're going to be working with legends.
1: And I'm. I like to say too, and. Not that I'm somebody now, but I was really nobody then. You know, and <laughs> I'm sitting there at Steve Howe's house and he, we go up in his attic recording studio with all his beautiful guitars and cases and we play a little bit and he's playing country music and he's playing all, I'm going, Oh my god, look at this guy. He's even more amazing than I thought. He's a wonderful guy, sweet guy, gentle soul. Um and he gives me a song and he says, You know, see what you do with this. This is one of my new tunes and I took it back to my flat in, in downtown London I had, and I rewrote this song from head to toe, changed the lyrics, changed chords, did everything. I put what I thought Steve Howard would shine on doing and what I thought the meaning of the song should be, which is totally the opposite of what it did mean to start with, and I took it back to him the next day, and the reason I say it that way is, here's this guy from right here where I'm talking to you now, this studio in Silicon Valley, it's never had a hit record, that is taking one of his idol songs and totally changing it. And I'm now walking back to Steve Howe saying, Okay, I, I can't play and sing this at the same time. It's too hard. But if you don't mind, I'll record the guitar track first. He goes, Yeah, here's the guitar. And then I realize I'm playing guitar in front of Steve Howe, which made me a little unsettled, you know? And then I sing the song, and you have to realize I've changed his words and the meaning. So it's not the same song, although it has kind of the same uh, the same kind of vibe to it, let's say. And he sits back when I get it done, and he listens, and he just was quiet, and he looks at me and he goes, no one has ever done that in one of my songs since John Anderson of Yes. He goes, I love this. Here's another song. Let's start working. And that just opened it right up, and uh, I took a chance, you know, you you got to give people your best work and what you do honestly. And I believe if they like that, then you have a, a bond. You have a friendship. You have the creativity uh, going between you that lasts forever. If you fake it or you don't give them what you think it should be, it, even if it works, you know, it's not going to work every time like that. But if you give them the real you, you can count on the real you. You know what that is usually. And um, that was really something I actually figured out right at that spot. Right at the moment in my life that, you know, whatever it is, if it's good or bad, whatever I bring, if I bring the what I believe, um, in, of course, it doesn't have to be totally accepted by somebody, but we can bat it back and forth. But I've still given my best. That uh, I think it means something. People can feel that. You know, they, they get into it more and they they accept you because you give them your best.
0: Now, what do you think those two? Saw in you, I mean, as you said, you were a nobody in Silicon Valley. They're legends. Yeah. What do you What do you think it is? Did they, did they just hear something in your music? Or do, you, or do you, uh, you personally, I mean, what's your thought? Did you sit there and think that they maybe just had this feeling about you? Because it's pretty fascinating. And, you know, and it's and for them to pick you and then it's a click. But what do you think personally, when you look back at it, what do you think they thought of you to make you come work with them?
1: You know, I had come to a point in my songwriting that Geffen Records was doing to me as a solo artist. They saw me as kind of a Sting meets Brian Adam. Kind of a straight rock guy, a little bluesier voice like Brian Adam, but a little more creative like Sting is. Not progressive like ELP and Yes, but just more creative and left influences. Because I had that stamp of approval from Geffen, um, that opened some doors for me. And when I got with Carl or I got with Steve Howe. Um, they kinda, I kind of had the backing of the record company as far as, hey, this guy has something going on. You got to check him out. So that always helped. But then again, it was up to me to prove myself. And that's why I say just being honest and giving them my best, what I thought was my best. Not worrying about what they're going to think, hurt anybody's feelings or whatever, just giving them my best and then being willing to compromise. Of course, after that, I had to because I wasn't in control of the whole situation. Um, I think that really uh, was the second step to me being qualified by the record company and some people I'd worked with there.
0: Now, now, when did Keith Emerson come into the picture and when when to invite you and in to be in three? How did that? How did that arise?
1: That was interesting because, as I keep saying, that you know, hey, I was nobody, and Steve Howe welcomes me into his band, you know. This band had a top 10 song on Heart rules the Mind, and here I am working on the second album. I'm spending all the time with Steve, right as Farm and Devon were yesterday recorded albums that I love. I'm working at, you know, I'm sleeping in a down feather bed in the middle of England, the countryside. Yeah. I mean, my life is really great. And we get to the rehearsal room, and the band's rehearsing, and the singer is not happy that I'm spending all this time with Steve Howe and that I'm writing all the songs with Steve Howe and that I'm the only American, the new guy. Uh, I'm not really getting any power, but I am hoping to grow the situation and make it successful. And he's, I guess you could call it, bullied me. He didn't want me singing any harmonies. He always come out and double my part. For sure, he wasn't going to let me sing lead, And that was one of my deals with the manager, Brian Lane, that at least on every album, I get to sing one song. If I get to do that, I'll give up my solo career and join GTR. And that was understood with Brian and I believe Steve, but the singer had nothing to do with it, so he made my life miserable. So I quit. After a year, I just said, you know, there's something better for me, even though there wasn't anything out there. I'm going home. I was coming back to my studio, coming back to California a day before, or two days before, actually, Man, Manager Brian Lane calls, he goes, Keith Emerson wants to meet with you. I go, really? Why? He just, he heard your cassette tape, and he, <laughs> he liked it. He wants to talk. I go, okay. Well, this was like Steve Howe, because Keith Emerson was my
0: keyboard hero.
1: The mode and the way he played was just amazing, you know? So I am having lunch with Keith Emerson, and we had the greatest two-hour lunch, uh, talking about everything musical he was so accessible such a fun guy a really nice person um and he had one request he said look i really like the material i'd like to start this band with uh, you paul and i but if we go on tour would you mind doing a couple of elp songs oh that'd be fantastic i'm a big fan i'm thinking we do lucky man maybe you know something no he he wanted to do the really hard stuff so once we got out on tour um, I had to learn some pretty tough ELP things, but um, he was a wonderful guy. We had a great uh, friendship and a great working relationship, writing relationship then too back in uh, we lived in this kind of a castle kind of place in Sussex, uh, England, and it was a great time in my life. I, I, I still I just get this feeling when I talk about it, uh, how great it was and how great all those people were. But with me, and and they Really put me on the map.
0: Now, now the fans. How did the fans take it? Because it wasn't ELP. It was three, and you know, and you did play some of their hard stuff. But were the fans accepting at first, or was it hard for you in the beginning? Because people get used to, you know, ELP, and now it's something different.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, that's a good question. The way way you stated that too, because for me. No problem. I was the new guy. I was just happy to be there. I knew that people thought, oh, I'd rather hear Greg Lake. Well, I love Greg Lake's voice. I love this song. I I could see where they'd want that. It didn't offend me. I was okay with it. Carl never got criticized because he had done Asia, which is kind of the same format as three. Progressive music with real, like hook choruses and more of a straight rock, middle rock kind of thing with a lot of keyboards. Um... But Keith, on the other hand, had only done ELP and Nice, which was all beating your brains out, hard playing, uh, based on a lot of classical music, a lot of fancy uh, keyboard stuff. And his devoted fans did not like it that he was going more of the Asia way in the late 80s. So they criticized him quite heavily, which grew on him, and he wasn't too good with that kind of criticism. They told him he was reading his career, how dare he play on straight songs? She had more to offer than playing a song with a book chorus. But now, you got to remember, three had a top ten hit we're talking about, and that's exactly why Pete wanted to do it, because he wanted some of that success that Carl had with Asia. And we got it. We had top ten. First out first of the shoot, first song. But one guy wrote a letter that said, You're ruining your career. You know, how dare you have female background singers on the band? They called them scantily clad female background singers. Now, if they were scantily clad, I would have been even happier. But they weren't. (laughs) But they were good singers. But what guy would say that? You know? Oh, I don't want to go see this great Keith Emerson play with beautiful girls, scantily clad girls, behind him singing. (laughs) I could never figure that out. Who is this guy? Who is this moron? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, and then, of course, who... Um, you know, I could see someone say, I don't like what Keith's doing now. But who's going to judge a guy's career saying, you ruined your career. You, what you chose to do, that's a bad move. I don't get that either. Because I can imagine someone saying, hey, I don't like that. A lot, of, a lot of songs I've written, if somebody will like it, somebody won't like it. That's okay, we're all different. But to criticize your whole sort of life's choice and trying to stay viable, in a music scene that was heading toward the band Nirvana and Guns N' Roses and all that. And Guns N' Roses was out, and we have a top 10 song. That's pretty good. That's success, you know, in that time of the music. But Keith caved into it, and uh, he said, I just can't do this anymore. I don't think it's the right thing for me. So we broke up the band.
0: So you broke up the band, and now, like last time you broke up, when you quit Steve Howell, you were lucky yeah. enough to, to roll into Key, you know, it all worked out for you. When when they he broke up the band, what were you thinking? What were, what were you planning to do? I know you have a studio. You can go back and record your own stuff. But what, what yeah. did you want to do at that point in your career?
1: You know, Brian Lane was still my manager in England. And he wanted to head back to being that Brian Adams Sting guy. And we took a bunch of pictures. They had a, I got a bunch of new songs. And then Sammy Hagar called me and said, look, I'm being harassed by the Van Halen about using Michael Anthony when I do my solo gigs. You want to play bass for me? And I don't know how that happened, but (laughs) there it was. And I knew Sam a little bit from, um, his old band, the Sammy Hagar band was my new band on the side called Alliance, which we're still recording. We have four albums out and, uh, so, I me mean, too, his old band, David Louser, Gary Beal, Alan Fitzgerald, I got to know Sam a little bit. I said, sure, I'd, I'd love to play at this. So, for a couple of years, I did that. Um, it wasn't the right time in music for a Brian Adams meet Sting guy, because in the '90s we were going for a jam and all that grunge kind of stuff. And I just, that wasn't me, and I wasn't going to change courts. I just didn't care for that.
0: Now, now, we're... and, oh, sorry.
1: No, it's okay. I'm sure from the 90s, then, you know, that went away, and all of a sudden Ambrosia needs a, a singer because David Pack left, so I joined Ambrosia. And I did that two years, and unlike Greg Ben, I couldn't get Ambrosia to do a new album. And I'm all about doing the next great thing. Now, I want to know what I'm going to do tomorrow, what's going to keep me active and feeling viable in, in life and in music. And then Greg Kim came along. That's sort of my path of how, I I, I don't know how people find me. I don't know why I'm so lucky, but I've been very, very
0: lucky. Well, how do you, how do you go back and forth? Because the music you've mentioned is all very different. You know, when you played with the guys from uh, when you were in three, you know, it's different than Sammy because Sammy's, you know, a little harder and then Ambrose a little softer and Greg's sort of, you know, the 80s new wave. How is a, bassist and a singer how do you sit there and put yourself in the mind frame to just you're really just scrapping what you completely did and you're, it's like you're starting a new project how do you do that i mean you know and then as you say they also wanted you to be uh a sting brian adams mixture yeah how do you sit there and put the different hats on and break out of it do you i mean you i would think as a musician you would form some playing habits and but for you, you can't because everyone wants something different.
1: You know, it, that's a really good question that I haven't really thought about that, the, the different styles, but I always say to me, when music, when it's done right, it, you know, I do a lot of songs here at the studio. I have a guy comes in that says, hey, I want this to be a mariachi tune. This, I, oh, okay, well, you know, I work with Los Tigres, who's the Mexican Beatles. Right, they record here at the studio i was raised in a studio that recorded mariachi's well I know the music okay good i someone says well i want this to be a little more you know piano pop a little classical oriented well i had eight years of classical pianos and major music in college i know what that is when it's done right that's kind of where i live it doesn't it's all music to me and i'm not sure that's a, a really great answer but when it's done right, I can sit back and kind of look at it and go, oh, this guy. Like, I have a kid right now that his music has a lot of angst. He's 25 years old, and his name's Harrison, and he likes The Who. He likes the 60s stuff, you know? And he plays me these songs and said, well, okay, yeah. If Two Fighters meets The Who, you know, you sort of analyze it. And I say, who do you want to knock off the charts? Oh, he goes, uh, let's say Lincoln Park, somebody who's a little bit newer. Okay, Blink 142. I said, okay. And we sort of analyze it, and I think about these different styles, and I apply that because this has been this guy's path. has been his life, and this is what he loved, and it's all music to me. It just has a different sound, different style, but it's all music. And I've been doing that for 30 years here at the studio, and I like it. I, I almost don't feel like I'm switching gears. It's just all the kind of music I like. And, and I, that's a, it's hard for me to... God, that's a really good question. It's hard for me to give you a good answer.
0: Well, how do you... Okay, well, here's something on, on the lines of that. How did you, as a performer acclimate to the different crowds you would play? Because as I said, just like the music, a Hager, a Hager crowd is different than an Ambrosia crowd and they're different than an ELP crowd. You have to get yourself in a certain mindset because I know you're going out you're a pro, you're a performer, it's just like actors, you get the role, you go out there and you do it because that's why you are there yeah. because you're good. Yeah. But for you, it's like Ambrosia to Sammy Hager is two different kinds of crowds and you, you have to wow the crowd but how did, how would you do that?
1: You know, first of all, it's just like I did with Steve Howe. I am a hundred and ten percent immersed into doing the best work, you know. I don't just do whatever I damn please. I sit and look at it and say, What does my experience? What do I like? What piece of it? Like with Greg Ken. I love the knack, you know, um, the cars, their new wave kind of group. Um Greg was, they say sort of garage rock, but I think he's more of a pop rock and kind a of straight rock thing, had some jangle. Tom Petty has some jangle in the music. So I sort of identify what is it about Greg Kim that I really like that been some of my favorite music. And of course, I always loved the breakup song and Jeopardy and those things he had. And how can I bring that piece of what I like and what I identify in Greg to the table? And I do it sort of, again, honestly, from the points of views that are my favorite pieces of it. So it happens on the stage, too. I just give 110%. Maybe it was Stanley Hager, my hair was longer, and uh, I used the F word a lot more. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, with Greg, um, you know, it, it's a lot happier kind of and rock and music. with ambrosia was soulful. So maybe I'm not jumping around on stage. I got to do a little bit smoother kind of stage routine. But it all comes from giving 110% to, to that songwriting and that style of music. You now with Ambrosia, which was the farthest out of my comfort zone, singing things like Biggest Part of Me, Who I Soul," Stuff, are things I actually do in the studio all the time. Um, but I've never done it in a band. So that was uh, really a, a tough adjustment for me. But it worked out so well. I loved being in that band. What great people and great musicians they were. And uh, if they would have done another album, I'd probably still be with... Them. I really, uh, really enjoyed it, but I couldn't get to do an album. Yeah. But then again, I'd want to do it like Greg and I did. I'd want to do the right album. I want to do an Ambrosia album. And Ambrosia, to me, is half progressive rock, like Life in LA, and half Blue-Eyed Soul, like Biggest part of Me. So I'd want to do it both. They were heading more toward being a little river band, more of the perfect harmony vocal band. Not really doing exactly what they were known for so that gets a little bit off of what i like to do
0: now what made you decide to open up your own studio was it just because you you wanted to have a place to go all the time because you meet tons of musicians some have studios some don't but what made you decide to put a studio together
1: in eighth grade playing in that band i told you about 12 years old i was having so much fun that my dad took me down to buy a tape recorder so I could record a few things in the garage. And remember, my dad had a band before that. So I had his old drum set in the garage. I had his saxophone in the garage. He had Vox equipment, so there'd be like a Vox organ in there, a Vox amp that he sort of storing that he didn't have room at the store for. And I had a guitar and bass. So I had like a whole band set up in in the garage. There was almost all his equipment, and He took me down to get a tape recorder And there was the guy there He said, well, you know We just got this tape recorder in That records um, between the tracks Start on track one And when you flick this switch It puts track one on the track two While you record live on a track two Then you switch it back the other way And you can put like ten tracks on Back and forth Well, for me With all those instruments in the garage That was like, whoa I I could practice everything and figure out how to do it, so I got that recorder, I think it was $400, it was a Ewer, a German uh, recorder, and I actually bought one last year, because I saw it online, because it meant so much to me, that's where I learned how to record, and it, I could only plug one mic, Try to record the drum set with one microphone, everything is in one microphone, and overdub, you know, as many instruments and vocals as I wanted, of course the hiss would build up, it. <laughs> should be stories by the time I was done, but I was learning how to copy sounds in eighth grade, freshman in high school, 12, 15 years old. My parents couldn't get me out of that garage. I spent more time alone learning how to do that and having fun. My friends would come over. Hey, you want to play baseball? Want to play football? I said, no, I'm not interested in that. I'm recording, you know. And they couldn't understand what I was doing. And I think my parents actually, being musicians, weren't worried about me, but they would like it if I was a little more social at that time and got out of that garage. I just couldn't do it. I was a nut for it. So when I you know, I recorded my first record at 12 years old, too, the guys in the band wanted to do a recording. So they took me down to a studio called Inky. And in a real studio, I'm going, oh, my God, look at this equipment. The guy's name was Grady O'Neill that ran it. We recorded this song, and he said, guys, that's really good, but it needs a little break, like a little drum-tom thing there, and on the organ, play a little something there. I go, huh? I make it up? Yeah. Well, I, I said, like this. I went, I'm going to turn on my piano here I'm in the studio. I Actually, I can remember exactly what it did. I went, beep, beep, beep. he goes, that's it. Cool. Said, you're kidding, right? <laughs> he goes, no, that's it. And so we did the song again in the middle, got this little drum group break and i went din, 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 din. it's still on the record today because once you put it on the record it's the river, right? and it actually was a good part of that recording it was a cool little break in the middle and i thought wow i, I, I should be writing songs and making up parts because that was fun i i guess it's like god i don't know how to at 12 years old, what would it be like that you do at 12 years old that you just really get a kick out of? Yeah. Uh, maybe, you know, if you love baseball and you get on the team? Right. You know, the junior high team, that kind of stuff. It's like you you get this pat on the back like, oh, you're pretty good at this, and uh, you can do this, and let's do it. And it was, wow, this is fun. So it was later on I got that four-track recorder, and I was in my mom and dad's garage working on 4th back now, no hiss. I had perfected, you know, I had a mixer I could record all the drums, put a bunch of mics on them. And when, remember, I was 12 years old, I met Grady O'Neill, and I didn't do another record in high school until I was a senior. And I was over at a friend's house, and this guy walks in, he's a milkman, and he looks at me, he goes, I know you, but... Um, I'm from this area. He goes, you're Robert Perry. I'm Grady O'Neill. We met when you were 12. You ought to come by and see the studio. What? Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, hi, Grady. So I did. I went down to see the studio. And he actually sort of offered me an internship to work there. So when I started college, which was San Jose State University, six blocks from Tiki Sound, i believe the university at, you know, three o'clock under four o'clock to the classes. I'd be down at Kiki till midnight. If I had homework to do, it happened 12 to one in the morning. Cause I was down at a studio working the real thing. And I just loved everything about music and recording and performing. And but like I said, I guess because I was on the stage before I was born, it, I was sentenced to music. I was sentenced to life of music. And, and I've tried to get a pardon or something, but I, I'm not getting out of this one. Music <laughs> well, is it for me. Well,
0: you've been playing all these different projects, and then, you know, the recent uh, the album, The Rules, have changed. How did that come about, and, and what was it like? Because the tragedy happened when you were trying to record that. How did that come about? How did you start to start recording that album?
1: Well, I told you that Keith had left it behind he, he wanted to break up the band. And 27 years later, now I, I had a record company bugging me for a second three album, but I said, Keith won't do it. I won't even ask him. Come on, let's do it. Let's... No, you, you just, I, I don't even want to ask him because we're friends. We do all kinds of other things. And I know he's just not, he wants to leave it behind still. So in 2015, was it, a record company put out three live in Boston, a, a live recording from our tour. And we all had to sign off on it, and I was excited it was coming out. Carl was excited it's coming out, and Keith just thought, "That's yeah, money in the bank. We get an advance. Yeah, I'll sign." So yeah, just you know deposit that advance in my account. He just didn't really think much about it at all. He wasn't a business guy anyway. Totally creative. Uh, that album showed up at his front door. In fact, we all got it on the same day, but he listened to it first that night with a glass of wine and. He's sitting in his living room, he put on the album, and when it was over, he called me so excited. He goes, Robert, we were really a good band. I'm like, huh? But we, yeah, I just listened to the album. I, I didn't know what to say because I had hoped to do something with him, but I knew it was impossible. And here he's telling me, we are good. He goes, "It were so fiery. The playing was so great. Your voice buddy, kept going on. And I said, God, I always thought we were a good band. The crowd loved us, you know, we toured. And I said, what would you think about doing another one? And he said, well, maybe. He goes, and this is what I should have started adding up a few things, actually. He said, and yeah, no one cares anymore, I don't know. I thought, oh, I've got a record company that cares. They've been trying to get me to do this with you, and I wouldn't even ask you about it. He goes, yeah, well, a record company. They don't really have any money to pay and stuff now, I don't know. I said, let me call Frontiers and Natalie. have been bugging me. I'll call you back. I call them. I tell them what we want. And they give me part blanche. They want this album so bad that they say yes to the money, They this yes to that. And I told Keith what I was going to ask him for, money wise, for, for his part of that band. He goes, well, what record company has that kind of money anymore? I said, well, uh, you know, Keith, you're Keith Emerson. Right. Because he had, yeah. then he says, nobody cares, right? I went, oh, man, this guy, I'm going to show him. When I was actually talking to the record company. I upped his price by another $10,000. <laughs> Just because I was so upset that he said nobody cared, right? And so they said, okay. So I called Keith back. He goes, you're kidding me. Because "How you should be my manager. And I should have thought about that little comment, too, because he didn't really have a manager then, and he wasn't doing that well financially or career-wise. And I said, well, let's start working. So we, we uh, sent a few files back and forth. I would say cassette tapes, just as a joke, because there's no tapes now, but we sent it back. But if we were on FaceTime or Skype, I'd show you here, on my board, I've kept all the cassette tapes from 1987 to 88 of things that GTR and 3 didn't use and things that 3 did in the studio, different mixes, it's just sort of a little, I don't know, a little reminder me how lucky I am to just see sitting here while I'm working with all these new people and stuff. So we had one song on there that and I said, "Deep." You know, I did not like this song back there, but I've listened to that, and it's really good So I sent it to him. He like, goes oh, yeah, let's do it. And he sent me some parts, and what we would do is talk on the phone um, after my sessions and after his day, and past this first part, we had some things going on, I do kind of like what I did for you with my my twelve year old uh, organ thing. Keith would play me something in his piano's living room, like <laughs> really fast. So I go, oh, that's cool. That is so Emerson. I love that. We ought to use that here. He goes, well, you go ahead and put it down there. So instead of just recording off the phone with that, I would try try to learn it and go <laughs> and slow. And he go, ah, eh, no, no, there's that G. There's a, and he would, you know. <laughs> He'd get me up to speed on it. I'd put on the photos. See, that's it. And I had all these parts and all the parts he had sent me. Then he sent me about, uh, I had about 20% of his keyboards actually done. And uh, we had the greatest writing and talking sessions. There was no time constraint. We didn't have to book a studio for it. It was in our open time. You know, it wasn't like, okay, you have to be at the studio 11 o'clock. We had a book from 11 to 6. You have to work then. You better be creative that there's none of that. If we want to just tell a joke, talk about kids, grandkids, we could do that. It was just a super good flow and a friendly, working relationship. Two guys knew each other a long time, and it was it was the best. I, I, it's hard for me to explain. Uh, with all the people I've written with and all the things I've done, it was super cool because not only was I writing with Keith Emerson, he had to give me a PM list on the parts that he was making up on the spot there, you know. Right. And it was, it was fantastic. So all of a sudden I get a call from his ex-wife, Eleanor, a good friend of mine, and, and they would stay remained friends of course. And she said, Keith's gone. And it was like, oh, my God, I, you're kidding me. I, we were in the middle of it. I mean, I started thinking about those couple things being had dead where he seemed kind of down and upset about him and then i thought about we had such a great time doing it i got him such good money and i just really didn't know that he was despondent because the good part of his life was the part of us working together and the money that was going to come in and the album and um but i guess the rest of it things weren't so good um it was quite a shock to me it took me about six months to you know raise my head and take a look at the material and say, I wonder if his son Aaron would play on this with me. So I called Aaron. Aaron said, oh, I'd love to. Aaron is really suffering, losing his dad. This would have been a good thing for both especially for him. Oh, I'd love the boy, yeah, send me a song. And the mistake I made is I sent him a really hard song. I was so proud of this one song called One by One. We had finished and uh, Aaron called me up. He said, oh, I, I, that's my dad playing. I I don't play like that. I thought, I shouldn't have sent him that. Nobody plays like that. Keith Emerson's the greatest in the world, you know? And uh, so, even though he uh, decided not to do it, it sort of got me rekindled, to use our our friend Greg's album title. Uh, It got me going on the material and the possibilities, so I actually finished it Took me a year to do on my own, just for myself. It was my dream to have a second album with Keith Emerson, it wasn't my dream for everybody to hear it. wasn't my dream to make a billion dollars. Wasn't my, my dream to be hugely famous from it. I just wanted to do a follow up album with them because it was such a great thing as a musician for me and the great part of my life. So I finished it. Now and that's what
0: yeah. now when you yeah. were finishing it, I just said, you know, you had had these impromptu sessions with Keith when he was alive. When you finished it were you, at times when you're writing it, thinking what would have Keith done here? Or were you sitting there going, oh, okay, yeah. I'm just going to do what I think will work? What, did you, what was going through your mind? Because it's, it's a lot to take in.
1: Yeah, you know, over the years, over those 27 years that we didn't do three, we had um, he had played on a, a band called Tempest, Celtic Rock Band, a favorite album. I had done an ELT tribute album. Uh, Keith had played on some you know, A few of my solo songs uh, A few other projects We had stayed in contact all the time And we we had done things together And I knew How he played and what his style was And what kind of person And I kind of knew what he would say to me Because the three album originally um, We really had to take A lot of songs that we both had And bat them around And make it what three became You know, and you have to sort of dissect things and build them back up. So I really knew I felt what Keith would say if I played him something and I had an awful lot of his playing already on the album. So I would sit here and I'm in my control room. where I'd talk to him and I'd basically do it with this huge monitor. of went to my with all the lights off and I would say, what would Keith do here now to complete this? And I kept, that and then I'd say and if I did this what would he say to me or if he did that what would I say to him and I'd try to have both sides of the conversation and, and not too analytically either I mean if analytically is a word but I wouldn't analyze everything I would just sort of let it come through me and say you know no Keith wouldn't want that he, he would say don't use that word love there you know I hate to use the word love yeah too, too stuffy and you know Oh, you know, if you're doing these boards here, let's put this in it. Let's make it more, you know, more richer and let's change the key here. There's just things that he liked to do. And um, it took me a year to do it. But when I got it done, I wasn't sure I had done the right thing. I didn't really know what I had. I I knew that I had followed our plan and filled in everything according to what we wanted to do. But I just didn't know if it was palatable to anybody else. So I sent it to a few people. The record company being one, and a friend of mine, Rolf Fremlinger, who has the three Facebook page, and uh, they both told me that I should really let the company release it. They thought it was a really good effort and a tremendous body of work, so I took a chance and let him put her out.
0: Now, it's funny. It must have been, as you said, you know, you weren't sure what, pe- what, what people would think. It must have been something hard for you because... One, you know, you had a great relationship with Keith and it's somewhat, you know, it's his last of his works. So it must have been for you. That must have been waiting for that first, first few input and feedback. It must have been a very nervous time for you. You must be like, holy crap, I hope they like it. I mean, because we all think that on little, little everyday things, you know, like when you're sitting there, I hope they like if you cook something. Well, I hope the people like that I cooked.
1: Yes, great. Exactly. That's the perfect analogy. And. Right before they're tasting it, if you like I felt, there's a lot of self-doubt there. Oh, I should have taken more time. Gee, did I do it right? I, mean, I know I followed the recipe, but uh, and now it's going to come out. It's going to be too late. They're going to taste it. And if they hate it, it's too late. They're going to hate it, right? Right. <laughs> and, uh, that's the way I felt. August 10th, it came out. And the day before, I was... Now, I don't, I'm don't. i not a nervous threat kind of guy. I'm, I'm a very up kind of happy guy. And, very positive, so it's not like I was depressed, but I had self-doubt, you know, like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have done this, you know, it, it, a lot of the weight for me was in the fact of this being the very last work that Keith ever did, and it being so much fun, and just getting along so great, that I wanted to make sure that the last thing he ever did was worthy of a great career and a great guy, and I just didn't know if it worked. At that point, I, I just had spent too many hours to really know. My perspective was skewed, kind of, you know. Now. They came out. Yeah, it came out, and, man, the reviews started coming in, and I kept scanning everything, looking for something negative, something, whatever it is. Um, they, I hate to say it, but they were just tremendous. Everybody treated with respect. They, they, they felt deep in the music. Uh, the things they were saying were way beyond my, my wildest dreams. It was really simple.
0: So you, you, you came out, and you got great reviews, and then now you're uh, you're playing with Greg. And um, I wanted to ask you, and if I don't know if this project's still together, but uh, the December people, when did that come out? And are you guys still putting stuff out?
1: You know, uh, we'll probably have a new album out next year, but I've stopped doing the live thing with them um it's it's a band that plays november december and we do things for charity we like to come into a, a city or a town and raise money for the homeless in that city or town we don't want to raise it for the rest of the world the rest of the united states a different state we want to come we want to be your give back event and you know i have a couple managers for it and they never could make it fly um we played you know 10 gigs and I was looking to do more good than that with it. I wanted to play in November, December, at least 30, maybe 35, and do some good because we're so lucky all year with the band's brand. You know, Gary Peel from the band Boston's in it. David Lauzer, Sammy Hagar's drummer's in it. I'm in it from the Great King band now. Uh, Dave and Ned, Keeper player for the Tubes, in it. And we're lucky all year. We get to do what we love and, you know, we make good living and uh, crowds like the music and there's just so much that we get out of it that we wanted to give back, and I didn't have the right manager. They kind of ruined it, really, and um, I tried to do it myself the last couple of years. It's just too much for me to book things and, you know, get all the venue particulars and travel and flights and all that. Oh, man, it's just way too much of what all I have going on. So this last year I said, if a manager ever comes along and sees how great this thing is, we can put it back together. But for right now, I have to put on a hiatus. And uh, I got this 3.2 thing is going crazy. I got a band together going to tour probably in June, uh, October. We already have dates booked. Um, and that has to be my main focus now. But December People is close to my heart. And if you look at DecemberPeople.com, you can see what it's all about. We take classic rock songs and the classic holiday songs and we morph them together. And... If you like Hotel California, we do Emmanuel more to the Hotel California, and you would think that Emmanuel was the original song. fits like a glove, just really something. And we have four albums for that.
0: That's awesome. And That's it's awesome.
1: a lot of fun. Yeah, it changes the Christmas music. A Trans-Siberian is really big. You go to see them for the show, you can't sing one song that, that they play, you can't remember them. You see a December People show you can actually sing Silent Night, which is done as, like, tears for fears, everybody wants to rule the world, because it really, the chords and the melody of Silent Night, but it sounds just like everybody wants to rule the world. And people, they just smile, they go, how do you do that? You know? That's awesome. It's a lot
0: of... Now, now, with Greg, I think, well, you have the two shows coming up, but I think Greg wants to tour more. Now, are you going to be going out with him, or or do you have other projects that will keep you at home?
1: You know, there's probably going to be a little crossover where the 3.2 thing might take me away for a few gigs. But, um you know, Greg and I tour all year. We do a lot of this duo thing like we're doing this weekend. It's so fun because he is a great storyteller. He remembers everything he ever did. He toured with the Stones. I mean, he's played with everybody, you know. And it's such a great show. Um And it's easy to get here and there with the two of us. So I don't miss too many of those. In fact, I don't miss any of those. It's the band things that I might have to miss a couple because the three-two thing is really kind of big for me this year. But I'm I'm right there with Greg. I mean, we're, we're, we're definitely partners in the writing, the performing, you know, the, the vision for the band and everything. So I just have to see how it works out. It's one of those things, you know? Exactly. And I don't know. I, yeah. I mean, it's going to be a busy year.
0: Well, you know what? I, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me. You definitely have a lot of stuff going on, and you've had a very fascinating career. And it's good that you're still in the game, you know, and you're still, I mean, it's just great. You're kicking out stuff. Yeah, you know, you have your different projects going. Now, your website is robertberry.com. And now, are you yeah. on Facebook? Do you have a Facebook page? Yeah. It, you know, there's,
1: I have a, you know, there's two, but it's, It's Robert Berry Music, I believe, is the um, phrase. If you go to RobertBerry.com, you can find all my stuff there. There's Instagram, Twitter, and everything. And what's really great about that is now 3.2 album. I actually have pressed a vinyl myself. I got the right back from the record company. A lot of people wanted a 12-inch vinyl album. So it's a double uh, booklet. has the whole story. and has the vinyl album. And I'm giving them uh, some picks away and a postcard thing. Um, if you look in the website, you'll see it. There's also a giveaway for, uh, you know, ELP had an album called Brain Cellar Surgery, and the cover was done by Geiger. And I have a museum-quality print of Geiger that hand-signed it for me, my own copy of it, and I'm giving that away um, on the website. I just enter, and I'm doing it to thank everybody for the way they treated 3.2. It's just I'm just so amazed that but I gotta do something special for everybody. So even though only one person's gonna win it, there'll be like ten albums or something given away two on there for the runners up. It's just it's completely free, doesn't cost anything. And uh, yeah, take check it out.
0: Cool, man, I wanna thank you for talking. People check out check out Robert's website. Check out you know, you go, you see the music, check it out, you know, listen to it, enjoy it. Also go to my website, Coopertalk.net. You can find over seven hundred and ten episodes up there. You can email me, Cooper, at coopertalk.net. Follow me on Twitter. That's at coopertalk. I tweet every once in a while. Not as much because it doesn't go to Facebook. And Facebook, I'm Steve Cooper, but that's my personal page. And, you know, if you want to add me, I'll I'll add you, unless you have, like, no profile picture and no photos, and I think you're sort of crazy. Anyway, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next week.